Well, hey, uh, podcast listener, this is Zach here, and I'm here with my friend Stephen. He's a college pastor. Stephen, say hello. Hey, Zach. Hey, we're excited to be with you guys uh, on today's podcast. Summer is coming to an end. Stephen, did you have a good summer, buddy? Boiling. It was boiling. It was awesome. A lot of fun stuff going on. I actually just married two of my SMU students, Jill and Kyle. Wait, you you married them? I thought you already had a wife. Well, I I put them together under God's uh, authority. Oh, so you performed the wedding ceremony for them. Well, that's exciting. Yes, it is. <laughs> Stephen, how are you feeling about college starting up? We got the, the, the students coming back. That's always an exciting time of year. Honestly, it's a little too soon. I wish they would stay away for at least another couple of weeks, but no, I'm excited. Wow, you sound like an amazing college pastor. <laughs> no, I'm excited to see him again. Summer has been great, but looking forward to the fall. Mm, that's good news. We've got fall kicking in, football starting up. we got a couple cool things going on around here as we head into the fall. Number one, we've got our School of Transformation uh, launching uh, a new class this fall. It's our semester-long training program, really focused on building a vibrant relationship with Jesus. If you're listening to this podcast and that sounds like a, a program you'd like to be a part of, you can go on our website and check out more information. We'd love to have you uh, sign up and, and be a part of that. And the second thing, uh, it's a big time for kids. I know teachers are starting back this week. And uh, in our kids ministry here, uh, we're having promotion Sunday on August the 20th. And so if you are a parent with a child in our children's ministry, you want to put that date in your mind, you'll be receiving an email this week about what that means as your little Johnny or your little Janie moves from the two-year-olds to the three-year-olds or the kindergarten to the first grade or fifth grade to sixth grade or whatever that might mean for you, just get some information so you can help your child in that transition. We love investing uh, in kids in our church and love seeing them grow. Today, we're starting a series uh, a series of talks, a series of sermons related to family and parenting. And I'm really excited. What do you think about it, Stephen? I mean, I don't have any kids, but I think it's great that people do. So... Um... I'm sure they're going to get a lot out of this sermon. I'm just kidding. I'm going to get a lot out of this sermon. Psalm 127, one of my favorites. It's a good one. Now, how long have you uh, been married, sir? I've been married for over six years now. So you're a pro. Practically. Practically a pro. Uh, I've been married for almost 15 and just excited. Yeah, I'm an old guy. Just excited uh, along with you to learn and to grow related to marriage and parenting. And so you're about to hear uh, the first sermon in that series. Um, And we're going to be kind of walking through the psalm for the next four or five weeks. So with that as an introduction, enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening, guys. Well, hey, everyone. My name is Zach Daniel. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch, Dallas. I want to say welcome home to you. Welcome home to the people of Jesus. Welcome home to the presence of Jesus. Welcome home to the purposes of Jesus. We're glad you're here with us this morning, whether you worship with us for uh, the rest of this service or the rest uh, of your lives. We're just glad you're here today. We're excited to worship Jesus. We're excited that you are a part. As the video said, we're launching into a new season in our church. The, the, this month of August, we're going to focus in on how do we do relationships well, 
How do we do marriage well? How do we do parenting well? And what, if anything, does God have to do uh, with those arenas of our life? Uh, this last fall, a TV show swept across uh, America. It was a very popular show called This Is Us. You might have seen it. It tells a story of a man and a woman, both from more uh, broken backgrounds, who meet each other, they fall in love, they get married, and uh, they begin to have a family. They get pregnant with triplets, and they're both overwhelmed and excited. At the same time, uh, they uh, unfortunately lose one of the children in childbirth, and in a remarkable turn of events, they end up adopting another child at the hospital that had been abandoned, uh, and they end up taking that child into their family. And the story, or the TV show, tells the story of this family from uh, the, the relationship with the mom and dad, the birth of the kids, their, their growing up years, and through some uh, interesting storytelling uh, uh, features, it flashes back and flashes forward to present day when the kids are grown. And this TV show captured uh, the hearts and the minds uh, of Americans this last fall. It's one of the most popular shows on TV. Uh, more than just people engaging and watching, according to Forbes magazine, uh, this show, This Is Us, was the most reacted to, most responded to, most engaged with on social media channels, uh, ways that people could give feedback of any show that, that they've ever seen of any show that the, the Forbes knew of. It was the most engaged show. Why is that? It's because we're fascinated by relationships. We're fascinated by family. We're fascinated by how the, do these relational dynamics of our lives work, and we're aware of both the beauty and the pain that can come out of these relationships that are so close to us, so formative for us. In fact, uh, psychologist Eric Erickson, as he developed a model for human growth and development, said people are defined by certain stages in their life. Each stage is focused around a central question, a central crisis, if you will. And he said, from age 20 to age 45, the central crisis, the central question that shapes life is will I or will you have relationships that are marked by intimacy or by isolation? Will we have relationships that are marked by quality and depth and faithfulness, or will we have relationships that are marked by superficiality and a distance? Will we be far from close relationship? He said that's the, the central question, the central crisis of age 20 to 45. He said at 45, the crisis shifts a little bit, but it's still relational in nature. It's will we live a, a life that is generous toward the relationships in our life, or will we live a life that's self-centered, that's focused on us? Will we be a blessing to those in our lives, or will we just focus on our own ends and our own aims? And that season of life, he said, would last from 45 to 60 or 65. So for many, the primary years of their lives, a huge span of our existence, the primary crisis, the primary focus, the primary venue in which we would develop would be relational in nature. 
the ancients, the Greeks and the Romans were so believing in the power of relationships, the power of marriage, the power of family, that they said, as the home goes, so goes the nation. That when there were strong marriages, when there were strong homes, when there were strong families, where where the parents and the kids were strong and healthy, then that would lead to healthy cities. Healthy cities would lead to healthy nations. When marriages were fractured, when families were divided, when there was brokenness between parents and children, when the home was weak, that would lead to weak cities, which would lead to a weak nation. They said, as the family goes, so go the nation. Intuitively, they're, they're, they're sharing with us things that we already know, whether from a, a filmmaker or a TV producer, to a psychologist, to politicians and political scientists, over and over and over again, what we see is that you and I, that we are made and wired for and long for healthy, meaningful relationships. It doesn't mean that we're all introverted or all extroverted, but regardless of who we are, as the saying goes, no man is an island. We're not made to live on our own. And just as we have this longing, we also have this frustration related to relationship because we all know the pain of broken relationship. We know the struggle of distance in relationship, the frustration of misunderstanding. And so we both long for meaningful relationships. And for many of us, if we're honest, we feel ill-equipped or confused or we struggle to have the type of relationships that we desire. For many of us, the primary arena, the primary garden in which we experience both the blessing of meaningful relationships and the struggle for those type of relationships is in the area of family. I think we could all agree that for most of us, whether it's with mom, dad, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, spouse, children, stepdad, stepmom, you fill in the blank. It's one of the primary gardens of our lives. We have the opportunity for strong relationships, or we have the opportunity for painful, distant relationships. And like I said before, how do we do that well? How do we do family well? How do we do marriage well? How do we do parenting well? What, if anything, does God have to do with it? Those are some of the questions that we're going to be looking at, answering over the next month, over the next several weeks. And I want to ask you, Uh, that you would make uh, an effort to be here. I'm a former teacher, right? When you're thinking about school starting up, you're remembering going to class and attendance policies. And I'm going to ask you over the next month for perfect attendance. Now, when I was a teacher, I would grade on a curve, right? So I'm going to say perfect attendance is four out of the next five Sundays. We'll call that perfect attendance, right? I'm going to ask you for perfect attendance because I believe you, you owe it to yourself I believe you owe it to your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your mom or your dad or your spouse or your kids or, or, or your family or your future family to invest and to be equipped and to be informed and to grow in the area of relationship. It's one of the primary defining markers of our lives. And I believe that if you'll come and you'll engage over the next several weeks, this would be a great opportunity for all of us to grow. I'm going to ask you not just to come, but I'm going to ask you to come 
ready to take notes, ready to write down things that you learn, because I believe that God wants to speak to you. When we come together, we're not just going through rote formalism. It's not just, well, this is what we do on Sunday. No, we are coming to meet with the living God. And whether it's a lyric from one of the worship songs that we sing, it's a prayer someone has for you that they, they pray, it's a, it's a scripture that really just stands out to you, or maybe something from the, the sermon, I believe that God wants to speak to you. And I don't want you to wake up on Tuesday morning struggling to remember what God spoke to you on Sunday morning. I don't want you to get to November and you're in a, an intense relational season and you've forgotten what God equipped you with this summer. I don't want you to get to 40 years down the road and you're working through relationships and God spoke to you in August of 2017 words and wisdom that would equip you for the journey, would equip you for healthy relationships. I want you to remember those things. So I want you to come and I want you to bring something ready to receive. We're a community that values the word of God. We value the scriptures. We value the leadership of Jesus, and we want to be sensitive and aware of that. Sound good? Now, in terms of the content, I have three goals for you, right? Three focuses that we're going to look at. Number one, I want you, as we progress through this month, to be convinced in your minds. I want to speak to your head that God has a good, wise, and loving plan for your family. I want, I want your head, in your head, I want you to be convinced. I also want to encourage your heart. I want to inspire you. I want to motivate you to pursue this good, wise, and loving plan. How many of you know it's one thing to know something is healthy, to know something is good, to know something is right, but not to want to do it at all? Let's take Brussels sprouts, for example. We know that it's healthy to eat Brussels sprouts. We know that it's good. We know that it's right. We know we should do it, but man, I hate Brussels sprouts. I don't want to eat them, right? And so often we are shaped, we are built, we are what we love. And so we want to be informed in our heads, but we want to be inspired in our hearts. And I want that for you, that you would see the beauty and the wisdom and the generosity and the blessing of God's plan for your family, and it would cause you to run with passion after it. Number three, in addition to being uh, convinced in your head, encouraged in your heart, I want you to be trained in your hands. I want you to walk away with skill. I want you to walk away with equipping that you can use to live out this plan that you can use to, to not just know it, not just be excited about it, but that you can have tools to carry as you go that you can use to build healthy relationships, to build healthy families, to build a healthy marriage, to, to parent well. So I want to convince your heads, I want to encourage your hearts, and I want to train your hands. Those are three things that we're going to do. So let's turn to the Word of God. We're going to be in Psalm 127. This whole month, really rich psalm is written by Solomon, one of the kings uh, of Israel in the days that the Bible were recorded, and, and we'll read this. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he, being God, gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A few words about this psalm. It was a a song that theologians and historians tell us was sung throughout the year in Israel, particularly around the annual festival. So it's like a holiday song. In our world, it would be a song we sing at Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's marked by nostalgia. It's marked by remembrance of that which is really important. And so season after season, year after year, generation after generation would be marked by this reminder of what was really important in life. As we read through the psalm, you realize that the writer Solomon is not using language of precision, but he's using language of poetry. He's not talking uh, primarily about physical houses, physical cities, literal arrows, literal quivers, but he's speaking a metaphoric language. He's painting a picture as he talks about the main theme of the psalm, the family. We see that in verse 1 where he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. When you see house there, I don't want you to think about the house that you or I live in, although that is a representation of what he's meaning, but he's speaking about the family. He's speaking about house in the sense of dynasty, in the sense of legacy, in the sense of you get on to Ancestry.com and you look up your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, and then you get further back than anybody in your family uh, really remembers, and you're finding all these great-great-great-great-aunts and uncles that you didn't know about, and you're seeing your family tree. That's what he's speaking about when he's speaking about the house. And he makes a bold statement, a very clear contrast that's important for us as we begin this journey. Number one, he articulates in verse one, he articulates that God, the creator God, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus is in the business of building families. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. It's amazing and fascinating to think about the God of the universe, Solomon is telling us, is involved and engaged in building family, that he cares about family. And at the same time, Solomon is making a contrast. He says, uh, unless God builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And so he's making uh, another statement equally profound that there is a way to build a family, there is a way to build a marriage, there is a way to parent, there is a way to build relationships uh, that is apart from God, that is on our own terms, on our own timetable, in our own ways, our own priorities, our own preferences, and the end of that pursuit is vanity, is futility, is emptiness. And you can think about a house being built and then falling over, it amounts to nothing. So here are two strong, bold statements. 
that God is in the business of building families. Or we could also say that God has a good, wise, and loving plan for the family. And that if we try and do relationship, family, marriage on our own, on our own terms, on our own timetable, in our own way, that it will end in futility. That one of the central issues of our lives will will look like destruction and rubble or may look good on the outside but be hollow and empty on the inside. Those are bold statements. And again, I want to speak to you on this matter. I want you to be convinced that, yes, God does have a good, wise, and loving plan for my family. He is in the business of building families, and I want to pursue that. So I want to make sure, because we have people from all different backgrounds and all different places, that we're clear on the contours of this plan. If we're really to understand and pursue this plan, we need to understand what we're meaning so we make sure we're all on the same page when we're talking about God having a good, wise, and loving plan for our family. So what I'd like to do is for you to turn your attention from Psalm 121 to Genesis chapter 1. You see, when the Psalms are speaking about family, no verse in the Bible stands alone, but it's interconnected, interwoven, part of a larger narrative, a larger theme of God at work in our world. And we see the theme of family being one of the things that runs from the opening pages of Scripture to the end of Scripture. And we're going to start in the beginning to see uh, about just what the Bible says, the contours of God's design, God's plan for family is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So let's stop there. It's the opening chapter of the Bible speaking about the creation of mankind. And I don't want you to get lost in, well, what about evolution? What about a big bang? What about, how does all that work? Or do, Like, I don't understand that. That would be a great conversation for another day. What I want you to see, what the Bible is saying, is that God is the one who did it. That God made mankind, made you and me with intentionality, with purpose, with thoughtfulness. That you and I, that we're made in the image of God. That somehow, in some way, both male and female are made to reflect, to look like, to, to, to have features similar to the God of the universe. The other thing I want you to see is that here, both male and female carry that reflection of God. We see that gender is not a societal construct that some people just came up with as a way of, uh, of doing things, but we see that male and female are, are rooted in the heart of God. And then what we see is that God blessed mankind. The God of the Bible is inclined to bless He's inclined, he leans into being generous. He has a propensity to bless, and there he's blessing mankind. And then it says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he's speaking to Adam, he's speaking to Eve, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply, meaning have sex and have kids, right? That's how the biology of this works. Be fruitful and multiply. Now turn over to Genesis uh, uh, chapter 2, 
And we see a further telling of the story, kind of focusing in on some different elements. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So again, retelling this story, God creates Adam. He looks at Adam and he sees that Adam is not good for him to be alone. So we see that God is a noticer of our needs, that he notices and is aware of our need for relationship, that it's not good for mankind to be alone. And so God not only notices, but then he goes to provide. He creates Eve, a helper. Unless you think helper is a diminutive term, a pejorative term, no. It's actually an adjective used to describe God himself. That, that, that Eve would be a partner, would be a co-laborer, would, would, would be a helper and a partner to Adam, that together that they would come together for strength. Then in verse 23, it describes Adam seeing Eve, and Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. If you've been at a wedding recently and you watch the groom, when they see the bride, at last, right, there's just, wow, this is the one for me. So verse 24, notice that it shifts out of the telling of the events of that first marriage, and it turns to the narrator, uh, giving us a lesson, giving us a paradigm, giving us a framework that we as the readers, we as the listeners, we as the community of God are to learn from. He said, therefore, in light of this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what we see from the beginning of Scripture is that God's plan for a family begins with a husband and wife, one man, one woman, committed in marriage, covenanted in marriage for life. That's the foundation of the family, the beginning of the contours of God's plan for family. And as we think about our own families, you can see, yeah, that you came from somewhere. You came from a mom and a dad coming together physically right, to, to, to birth you, right? And God's original intent, that biological act would flow out of the marriage commitment, would flow out of man and woman together. Now, I realize the cultural moment in which we live, there are many questions about sex and sexuality. There are many questions about gender and lots of marital issues. I don't have time to go into them to give them the treatment they deserve today, but Two years ago, uh, we did a whole series on this, these couple chapters of the Bible called uh, Imago Day. You can go on our app or on the podcast or on the website, and you can listen to those because I go into teaching God's perspective, God's vision uh, around these issues, and I encourage you to listen. And then if you have further questions or you'd like to discuss them more, send me an email, and I would love to uh, have lunch with you and, and talk more about it. For right now, though, we're going to fast forward from this scene, Adam and Eve speaking to us about the contours of God's design, God's plan for a family. We're going to fast forward into the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. 
the Apostle Paul picks up on this same storyline, this, uh, this same idea, talking about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands should submit in everything to their husbands. And so what we see the description in God's plan for family, it's husband and wife together, and that there's an image of what their relationship is to be like. The way the wife is to relate to the husband is to reflect the way the church relates to Christ. Well, how does the church relate to Christ? The church is to be open and tender and honoring and desirous of Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying, God's plan for a family, that's what a, a marriage is to look like. That's what God's desire is that a wife would be open and tender and respectful and desirous of her husband. Now, if we were to uh, go to coffee this afternoon, uh, a handful of us, and were to sketch out what would we hope for marriage, what would we hope for that relationship to be like? I imagine that's many of the adjectives that would come up that we would say, man, that's the type of meaningful marriage that I want. We see that that's what is shaped in God's plan for family. Now, let's turn to the, the exhortation to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to her the church to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. That's verse 25, 26, and 27. And it says in verse 28 that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. In verse 29, he says that husbands are to nourish and cherish their wife like Christ does the church. And then he quotes the famous verse that we looked at before, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, right? He refers back to the Genesis story. What do we see here? That the husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. How did Jesus love the church? He gave everything he had for her. He gave everything he had in love. He gave everything he had to serve her and to build her up and to nourish her and to cherish her. And that's what husbands are to the way they're to love their wives. Now, again, if we were to go to that same coffee shop talking about well, what, would, what would it look like for just a vibrant husband and wife relationship, I think this is the type of love, even the type of adjectives, to nourish and to cherish the wife. Right? You get the picture, man. This is a vibrant marriage. This is a type of marriage that, that many of us would say, that, that's what I want. That's the type of relationship that I want. If these are the contours of God's plan for family, wow, I want that. But I also know, right, I'm not a fool. I, I know some of the roadblocks that we have uh, related to this. You're like, Zach, yeah, I know, but that's just part of the story, right? You're kind of uh, pushing under the, the, the rug what the Bible says about sex, right? So yeah, that does sound like a good marriage, but I'm not gonna buy in to God's plan for, for family because I realize, man, there's, 
There's some teaching in the Bible that just seems antiquated, seems outdated, seems seems passe, prudish, just, man, just not for today. Like, I don't watch black and white TV, right? I like colored TV. I'm not going to I'm not going to hold to some old-fashioned kind of sexual ethic that I've heard about in the Bible. I, 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 I'm, I'm progressive. I, I, I live in 2017. Like, we just need to evolve and, and move forward. Don't you think we know better, right? So I'm not going to go in for God's plan for, for family. I agree there's, man, that's some, that marriage sounds awesome, but I just, I, I'm not, I, what, what about that? I think those are great questions. I think those are very legitimate questions, and I want to. I want you to hear me. I'm not gonna brush anything under the rug. I'm gonna be straightforward with you because I love you, and I want you to really understand this. And I truly believe that God's plan for family is good, wise, and loving. And I want to walk you through. I want to answer some of your objections. Let's look in First Corinthians six nine. So again, Paul talking about the marriage relationship, and what we're about to read comes in the context of the overall biblical message about marriage, sex, and sexuality. It doesn't stand alone, but it's woven in with the larger narrative. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writing, he says, Or do you you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the Greek word for that is porneia, where we get pornography from, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, meaning kind of promiscuous, sleeping with everyone, uh, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ding, 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 Zach, that's it. You just hit on it, man. You just kind of knocked out all this sexual activity. That's what I'm talking about. That just makes me like, I don't know that God's plan is actually that good, wise, and loving. I mean, how can there be any good reason for that? And I agree with you that I just outlined the the part of the contours, the boundaries around sex and around sexuality, right? That the biblical view of sex and sexuality, there are limits to it. There are boundaries. There are dividing lines and contours, but let's keep going. I'd like to show you one other scripture that kind of completes the picture that I imagine many of us are not familiar with, right? We've heard the hellfire and brimstone preacher preach those verses, right? We've heard the youth group pastor or the, the, the sex ed teacher just trying to, you know, scare kids. Like, don't do that, right? But, but let's, let's look at this. 2 Corinthians 7, so continuing the same line of thought. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The Corinthian church had written Paul a letter trying to understand, just like you and I, trying to understand God's plan for family, sex, and sexuality, and they had heard somehow, somewhere, some way, that it wasn't good for men and women, for a husband and a wife to have sex. So they're asking Paul, is that true? What does he respond? He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, this is 2 Corinthians 7, Two, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Look in verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority 
over his own body, but the wife does. And so what we see is we start to see within marriage a very different picture uh, of sex and, and sexuality that rather than being off limits, it's encouraged in its rightful place. That husbands are to give to wives their conjugal rights. If you don't know what conjugal is, you could Google it, but it means sexual rights. And wives the same way, and it even differentiates them, meaning uh, wives might have different conjugal rights within marriage, different sexual desires than their husbands, and, and husbands are to be attentive to that, and wives are to be attentive to their husband. You kind of start to get this picture of a really vibrant sexual relationship that almost catches us a little off guard if we're not familiar with the biblical view on sex. He goes on in verse 5, don't deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's, what's he saying? He's saying don't deprive each other in the area of sex. If you are a, a, a husband committed to your wife, and if you're a wife married to your husband, don't deprive one another sexually, but, but, but pursue this. Come together. And notice he's not saying, oh, just have sex you know, every now and then, make sure you got the lights off, make sure you're under the sheets, make sure that's dirty, like just don't do that. It's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying have sex so you can have kids and just only have sex to have kids. No, he's not saying any of that. He's encouraging husband and wife to pursue a vibrant and active sex life. Wow. I imagine this is new for, for many of us, but this is consistent here and in other places in the Scripture of painting God's vision, God's plan for the family, God's plan for marriage. Think about it. The Creator God, the God of the universe, is the one who thought up sex. He's the one that designed parts of the body that have no reproductive function and yet experience extreme pleasure in sexual intercourse. He's the one that thought that up. This is the God you worship if you follow Jesus. One that loves to give pleasure. This thing, man, how can I just bless these guys? Oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make woman like this and man like that, and they're going to come together, and it's just going to be really enjoyable. God's a giver of pleasure, and the place of that pleasure, pleasure flourishes is within the bounds, within the boundaries God's design for husband and wife. Now, you might be like, Zach, that's, that's new to me. I have not heard that verse before. That's not normally the one that the hellfire and brimstone preacher talks about. That's not normally the one that, that CNN takes out of context to, to, to make Christians look bad. That's not normally what it is. But I still am not there. Like, I, I've got some more uh, objections, right? I, you know, I want to give to my wife her conjugal rights. That sounds amazing. I want to have that type of marriage you're talking about uh, where, where the husband and the wife love each other. And to do that, man, I need some experience. I need some variety. I need to understand what to do so that when the time comes, I'll be ready. I need to practice. Like you wouldn't hire a heart surgeon, Zach, who didn't have a, a variety of experience, right? You, why, why would this be any, any different? 
I call this the experience objection. Now, the National Marriage Project out of the University of Virginia uh, gives us these statistics. It says 77% of couples that they studied have had multiple sexual partners. So for many Americans, we believe the experience kind of objection. That yes, that's God's design maybe, but I need to get experience, right, in order to be able to, to do that. They also tell us, the National Marriage Project tells us that men and women whose only sexual partner was their spouse reported higher marital quality than those who had had sex with other partners prior to marriage. What's that saying? It's saying it's actually the couples without experience, that their only experience is with their, their, their spouse, that have a higher quality marriage that the experience objection actually falls flat under the weight of, of actual experience. It doesn't deliver on what is promised or supposedly promised. Okay, well, maybe I don't need to have all that experience and I can still have a really rich marriage. But, Zach, I want to have fun. I'm only young once. I want to sow my wild oats. I want to have fun. I need that pleasure. I want that pleasure, the pleasure objection. A study by Finer in 2007 reports that 90% of couples have sex before marriage, right? So we believe that pleasure. Hey, we, we need to go for it. We need to have fun. Loosen up. You've been married too long, buddy. We need to have fun, right? Interesting, uh, interesting statistic to go with that, though. Again, the Family Research Council found that 72% of couples who waited until marriage to have sex reported having greater sexual satisfaction than those who did not wait. So the couples that went ahead and had sex outside of God's design for marriage, they're like, man, I just want to have fun. Let's cut loose. Let's, let's you know, uh, have a good time. In the end, their sex lives were, were worse than the couples who waited. 72% of the couples who waited said, uh, reported scores of sex life being uh, more enjoyable than those who didn't wait. So the deal is that God's plan doesn't steal our pleasure, right? God is a giver of pleasure, and the greater pleasure occurs when we lean into God's plan. The pleasure objection uh, falls down under the weight of, of evidence. Next objection. Oh, next interesting fact. So University of Chicago did a study called the Social Organization of Sexuality, and they found uh, that married, conservative, evangelical, Protestant women, so married, gospel-believing, following God's plan for family women, get this, reported the most satisfying sex lives of anyone studied, of any female studied, and the most orgasms. Now, it's not often you hear that word in church. I realize it's a little like, oh, are we really going there? We're going there. Why? Because where else are we going to learn? Are we going to learn in the, in the junior high locker room? Are we going to learn from MTV? Are we going to learn from Maxim Magazine or what your buddy told that buddy that he supposedly did or, or she supposedly did or did not do? That's not a place to learn. God's the one who designed this, right? And he's designing it for flourishing. And what we're seeing is that the most enjoyable, the most active, the most pleasurable sex comes within God's plan for family, not outside of it. Last objection, 
the frequency objection. Well, maybe if I waited, it would be more pleasurable. Maybe if I waited, it would, um, you know, I would have a richer marriage. But Zach, yeah, it's 2017. Everybody is having sex. Everybody's doing it. I need to kind of get with the times, right? National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior uh, found that single guys age 18 to 24, we'd say, you know, so in their wild oats, right? 10% report having sex two plus times a week. Only 10%. So maybe it's not that everyone actually is having sex all the time. Maybe it's that people are trying to act like they are. But really, fact of the matter, only 10% of guys 18 to 24 having sex two plus times a week. Married guys, 18 to 24, on the other hand, 66% report having sex two plus times a week. So when it comes down to frequency, if you want to have sex, get married. You'll have more sex. Wow. Following God's plan leads to a richer relationship, leads to a more vibrant sex life, more enjoyable sex, more frequent sex. I, I You know kind of the objections start to fall down and our minds begin to shift of, wow, maybe, maybe there's more to God's plan than I thought. And I don't share these statistics to beat you up over what you've done or where you've been. I want you to know when you come to church, you're not here to get beat up, but to get built up. And I want you to know that Jesus is a healer. And it's not so much about where we start, but if we'll look to him, he will heal and restore and renew and build, build a family that, that flourishes. And I was hoping that as you see these truths about God's design, the contours of God's plan for family, that your mind is starting to shift of, wait, if, if, if God's plan for marriage and, and sex is, is that good, leads to that much joy and pleasure, what other lies or half-truths might I be believing about God's plan for family in other areas? And when we get to parenting and we get to those type of relationships, and I'm hoping your mind is beginning to shift that you might be more open, like I said in the beginning, hungry for, man, this seems like a plan to run after. And again, regardless of where you're starting, Jesus is for you. And he's extending his hand today, and he's wanting to build you and build your family and heal you and heal your family and grow you and grow your family. And as we close, I want you to, um, I want to lead you just in time of response. We're going to sing together a song about building our lives on Jesus, building our lives on the solid rock of who Jesus is and his plan. It's just a way of declaration of saying, man, God, I, I, I want to go your way. And I realize that the steps forward uh, are, are going to be different for many of us. Some of you might, it might be like, man, I need some prayer in this area. And we'll have our prayer team up here. and We want to pray for you. Others of you, it might be like, you know, I need, to, I need to go to a counselor. I need, I need some help in my marriage because, yeah, that may be what it should be, but that's just not where we are, Zach, and we, we need help. And I want to encourage you to take that step. Some of you here, you, you may not know Jesus. 
You may have heard about him. You may have, uh, uh, you know, kind of had an idea about him. But when we talk about knowing Jesus, you're like, I, I'm, I haven't done that. Well, we'd love to talk with you about how today that you can uh, come to know Jesus, that you can come to receive his grace and his forgiveness and his salvation. And that may be the step for you. I don't know what they are, but I want to pray for you as we close. Jesus, you're amazing. Your plan for us leads us to flourish and to prosper. You're a builder of families, Lord. Thank you for your good, wise, and loving plan. And I pray for my friends all across this room that you would uh, show them the next step that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to continue this series related to family. We're going to build on the lesson from today. So I just want to encourage you to partake of this, to, to come back, right? Perfect attendance. Love you guys. You are dismissed.